Welcome to my podcast, Why Didn't Anyone Tell Me This? With my guests, we are discussing health issues, questions you may have about your health, and debunking some of the myths around our health. And today, it's great to talk to Dr. Naomi Sutton about all things to do with sex. And it's not just a coincidence that this podcast is coming out on Valentine's Day. So welcome to my podcast, Naomi. Thank you very much for having me. (laughs) So a bit about Naomi. She graduated from Sheffield Medical School in 2003 and has been working as a consultant physician for the NHS at Rotherham Sexual Health Services since 2016. Throughout her career, she has developed a passion for education and raising awareness of sexual health, both for other health professionals and for the general public. And she starred in series one and two of E4's The Sex Clinic, which helps young people get their sex lives back on track. And as well as other media roles, she has talked frankly about vulvas. We love talking about vulvas. (laughs) uh, Sex in old age. HIV and other sexual health subjects on Channel 4's Steph's Packed Lunch. In conjunction with the charity You Before Two, Naomi has recently developed PSHE accredited sex education materials, strongly believing fun, clear and accurate education is key to combating a lot of the struggles she sees people presenting within her clinics. So it's going to be a really great episode today. It's something that I am very passionate about. So I'm so excited. But Naomi, let's start with your career and what made you want to become a doctor and why you decided to work in sexual health? Um, So I always struggle with this question a little bit because it's really quite simple and a little bit cliche, really. But as a child, I always wanted to look after everything. Um, I used to rescue broken legged pigeons and cats with a limp and I I just I always I like caring about people or or things at the time um and I was always fairly clever at school um no one in my family was ever a doctor in fact they're all very creative so I'm a little little bit like the black sheep of the family really because I went into a proper job (laughs) um but it just kind of fell into place I suppose and so um, yeah, so I went through medical school and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I knew I couldn't be a surgeon because I am incredibly clumsy and fall over my feet. And um, and I knew I liked the talking side of medicine um, and I wanted to be a specialist rather than a generalist. So I didn't want to be a GP. So I initially wanted to do palliative care, which is all about, you know, helping people have a good death, which I'm still really passionate about. And I think sometimes done really badly because again a little bit like sex death again is another stigma that we don't like talking about um but I came across sexual health as a training post um when I was a junior doctor as an SHO and it just felt right and it was it was just felt like I'd fallen into what it's like putting a hand in a glove I suppose that fitted really well and um it's something I've just grown to really love and I've just become a real uh well probably quite boring I get invited to barbecues and start talking about vulvas and syphilis and everyone goes god she's going on again so (laughs) so yeah I think if you cut me in half a bit like a a bit like a stick of rock I'd just say sex sexual health vulvas HIV I mean I am very boring um but I I just feel really passionate about what I do I think we're good fun to have out on a night out. I don't know about you. I'm sure you're the same. When I'm out with friends, we're like, oh, how long's it taken her to get round to talking about sex and vulvas and penises? And I, I think people listening into the conversation must be going, oh, my goodness, how embarrassing. But this should not be yeah. embarrassing. And we, we are both very, very passionate about education and normalising sex and reproductive yeah. health. And I've heard you say that your fantasy sexual health utopia would be where sexual health screening and discussion of sexual health issues are a normal part of a healthy existence, not a matter to be embarrassed or apologetic about. So how would you like to see this? And we we were chatting about this before we started, so I know we totally agree on this. What would you like to see in society to normalise these discussions? Well, it's. I think it's really difficult. And what we always have to remember is that we are all part of a society that's, and, and we all have different experiences that are all going to vary. So anyone listening to this may be from a totally different culture, society, religious beliefs than you or me. And so I think we always have to remember that we can 
um, I guess, spread our wings within our society as much as we can. But we can all be better educated and better at talking about it. And I mean, when I was growing up, we didn't talk about sex in the house. It was just it was just not a conversation to have. And I'm sure lots of people have, you know, over the lots of people will have had that experience. So when I had children, I've got two children, one's 15, one's 12, and, and sex and, you know, masturbation and condoms and clitorises are really part of the dinner table chat, really, but, you know, in, in a balanced way, and we made sure it was age appropriate. But I remember when, because I haven't always been like this, so I've had to do a lot of soul searching about my own prejudices, I suppose, and my own thought cycles about what I find weird and funny and when I had so I've got a son who you know I could we named his penis a willy and that was fine and I remember going to you know baby groups with Molly going what are you calling your daughter's bits (laughs) and that sounds just ridiculous I'm a sexual health consultant why was I worried anyway and then when uh, Eva Peel asked me to be ambassador and we were shouting about call it a vulva call it a vulva and I was like good god I really need to get with this program so I went home and said to Molly I said you do realize that you're she was I think about probably five or six I says right Molly we need to have a chat it's not front bottom or bits it's a vulva and the vagina is the tube that goes inside so but again, so I think we can all learn and we can all get better. And I'm always learning. So although, you know, I talk a lot about sex and I teach a lot about sexual functioning things, we're still learning. And I think that's really important to know is that, you know, I'll get it wrong. We'll all get it wrong at times. Um, but I think as long as we're reflecting on whether that's working for you and whoever you are, either having sex with or educating, um, I think that's the important thing is just, you know, and try things out. And it's really awkward to start with. It can be. Um, But another thing I think that's really important to remember is that we're not born with shame. We learn that. So as a parent, if you, you know, if if your son or daughter is touching themselves, for example, when they're a child, if you make that an issue or something that they sense is dirty or wrong, they they won't forget that. And even if it's just a look or a, oh, don't do that they understand not to do that again or not to talk about it. And so they kind of internalise this feeling of, oh, mummy or daddy didn't like that or care or whoever is looking after them. Um, And so, you know, we start this kind of process of learning that's not, you know, that was something wrong. So I remember, you know, Toby used to play with his his willy. He's going to be so embarrassed. Um, And, you know, I remember I was breastfeeding Molly and I said, Toby, sweetheart, I said, you know, I'm totally fine if you want to do that. And I said, but, you know, you're an age now where, you know, why don't you go and pop into your bedroom if you want to do that? It's kind of something that you do privately. So, again, it's learning how to say it in a because, you know, we all have to live in a society. You can't just pop your penis out and have a play in the (laughs) middle of Tesco's. Um, But, you know, it's getting that balance right, I think, which is difficult. Um, a really, really good website is um, and is Outspoken Sex Ed um, for parents. And they do like a month, I think it's every three months, bring out a newsletter. There's loads of resources about how to open up conversations about sex at different age groups, because obviously it de- depends how old your children are. Um, but yeah, I think it's really important to practice and, and get going and swallow our own weirdness. I think for parents that that website's going to be great because um I've spoken to many parents as, as well about you know what how are you going to talk to your kids what are you going to say and uh, many parents said oh well, I haven't had the talk or I don't want to give the talk I've, I've been putting it off and mm-hmm. as you say it's it shouldn't be a talk it shouldn't be a one-off and I can remember actually when I was eight my I have older siblings and they said to my mum, you've got to give Joyce the talk. And I can remember the talk. I can remember sitting at the kitchen table and having the talk. Um, yeah. But it, it needs to be a conversation. And we're, we're going to talk about anatomy now, just getting that anatomy right. And, and when I started fertility education uh, about 10 years ago, I can remember being quoted in all the newspapers because at a conference I'd said that we need to use age-appropriate terms and um, I said exactly what you said about boys playing with their willies. Boys, I said boys play with their willies, and it was in the paper. And I said, everyone said your sons are going to be mortified. And I asked them, and they said, "Well, we do play with our willies." 
So, you know, we've normalized that conversation in our house. But I, I think the trouble is for adults, and I've been doing a bit of research around this, they weren't taught properly. And because they weren't taught properly, they haven't got the language or the confidence or the words. So at that website you mentioned, I, yeah. I'll put that in the, in the notes as well. I think people really need to uh, help themselves and, and change this narrative and let's normalize it. Yeah. And, and my, my mother yeah. told me, she's not around now, so I can say this, but she told me that sex was terrible that we just had to, she literally said we had to lie back and think of England and it's not enjoyable. And then when I realized that it was enjoyable, um, actually first through masturbation, my kids are going to go mad now. <laughs> but um, before I'd even had a sexual encounter with a, with a man, um, I thought she's really wrong. It It's lovely and it makes you feel mm. lovely and we shouldn't mm. make it this, this terrible thing. But let's, let's go on to anatomy. Mm. So I was at an Eve Appeal event actually quite a few years ago, and there was a panel discussion about using the right words. And I don't remember her name, but one of the women said she goes into nurseries and she says that vagina is just about considered okay, but vulva is not considered okay. And we went crazy. The audience said, no, we have got to change this. Vulva is not a, a, a rude word. And I, I've, I, I can remember some of my posts years ago on, on Instagram and Twitter. So some did get blocked because it said vulva. And penis seems to be okay, but, mm-hmm. but vulva. And I still see people now putting, you know, um, VU asterisk. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with the word vulva. So what are your, do you have um, frustrations or people getting confused about using the correct terms? And what would, what would your advice be for that? Yeah, a hundred percent. People get confused, and a lot of people come in and say there's something wrong with my vagina, and presume that means the entire female genitals, which obviously it doesn't. So just to be clear, um, the vulva is everything you can see on the outside. So that includes the labia majora, which are the the fatty um, pads, I suppose, next to the labia minora, which are the lips, and then you've got your vagina and your, clit- your vaginal opening, and then your clitoris. So all that is vulva. So everything you can see if you opened your legs. And then the vagina is the tube on the inside. And I think the reason we are a bit strange about the world vulva is because we're okay with vagina, womb, ovaries, because they're very biological and it's kind of about reproduction and you do it in biology. Whereas vulva is, I guess, um, maybe it's because it houses the clitoris. I don't know. But vulva is almost, uh, maybe it's almost, um, an unnecessary thing to to talk about, I suppose, with regards to reproduction. I will say when, as a, as a medical student, when we were doing anatomy, we did the penis, the testicles, the blood supply, the nerve supply in full detail. We then did the vagina, the uterus, the ovaries. The vulva wasn't really considered and the clitoris definitely wasn't considered. So I didn't realise until... Gosh, and I'm ashamed to say this, I'm a sexual health consultant. I didn't realise until about probably six or seven years ago how big and beautiful the clitoris was. I've got my little model up if anyone's watching it on telly. Um, so I got sent these in the post and, and I'd heard about it before, but I was like, my God. So the little nub, which is the glands, the glands clitoris that we see, is in textbooks. But a lot of medical textbooks, you won't find full details of the clitoris and that's because it wasn't until 2005 when Helen O'Connell who's a urologist put people through the MRI scanner and started you know detailing this you know big organ that women or all women have which is just there for pleasure um and and I always kind of it makes me a bit cross because as doctors we aren't taught to look at that area we just go straight with the speculum to the good stuff you know, to the bits that matter in a way. And and I'd say the same thing about sex education in that, you know, boys are often, you know, boys are often educated about wet dreams and erections um, and, you know, sometimes condoms. Women are, talk about, are taught about periods and babies. So already boys are already thinking, oh, pleasure, sex. Women are taught about periods and having a baby. Neither of those things are particularly pleasurable when you're, you know, thinking, you know, 
does that make sense? So, so I think we really need to think about all these little tiny things that create all these uh, these ideas and weirdness and, and the inequality that we see with the orgasm gap and everything else. Sorry, I've got waylaid. You asked me what we should call them. So I think all people should know the exact terms of their anatomy because if you come and see me, for example, and they, you know, boys will come in, they'll go, or men, they'll go, oh, something wrong with with my tail. And I'll go, okay, and uh, whereabouts on uh, the tail, or should we call it the penis, um, is it? And they'll go, oh, the the, um, the tip or whatever. So I think it's worth knowing glands, penis, frenulum, foreskin, shaft of the penis, testicles, scrotum for a boy. And I think it's important for, for girls to know or women to know the vagina is the tube inside. You've got your um, vulva and then you've got your labia, majora, menorah, and your clitoris. And to be honest, I, I couldn't care less what people call them in the bedroom or in as a slang term, because I think if it's easier to talk about and bring it up, call it whatever you want. But one thing, um, I can't remember who told me this, but there was some case where the girl was being sexually abused in a nursery and she'd been told that her um, vulva was called a flower. So she kept coming home saying, someone's touching my flower. And so, you know, so so sometimes I think we have to be careful about what we call things. So people have to know the right terms. But then, you know, I don't say to Molly, make sure you've washed your vulva. I say, make sure you've washed your bits because it just feels easier to say. But she knows what I, I mean and she'd be able to explain it, if that makes sense. I, I, I totally agree. And I, I do hope that the word vulva will become normalised. We, we, we're changing a lot of language now, and we've both got teenagers, so I don't understand some of the way they're using words there. I said, what does that mean? Um, but I, I, I do think that we've only really just started talking about vulvas, and I, I think in a few years everyone will say vulva, and it, and it just won't. It it won't be such a, a problematic word. So it's it's, but it is frustrating that mm. it frustrates me when people talk. I mean, um, Julian Anderson was wearing. They called it a vagina dress the other day. It was a dress that had vulvas on, and then yes, was like, "That's a vulva dress." So I think we will get there. And and you, you, know, you and me are getting people to shout out. I'm getting people to shout out the words. Um, and I I think we'll have less taboo about it. And that what you said about the clitoris, it's un unbelievable unbelievable mm-hmm. we have only recently understood what a beautiful piece of anatomy it is yeah and, and how it's 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 crazy anyway let, let's move we could talk about anatomy all, but let's talk about sex so i i think we both agree that it's still too taboo we you know we almost everyone has sex and we have sex yeah, if anyone's got a child, they've had sex to have a child. And it's it's unbelievable. But let's start with about um I want to talk about orgasms and masturbation. So I've recently made some videos mm-hmm. about female orgasms and masturbation for postmenopausal women. And I'll be showing these um the week that we're doing this putting this podcast out. But I wanted to ask you why why are orgasms good for, for men and women? Why is it good? What what does it do to us? to make it I, I think it's good for our health well, so it is good for our health so the um basically by encouraging blood flow into that area you're um keeping those tissues healthy so um especially as we get older and especially as we become menopausal blood flow can reduce just like it does with a penis and that's why a lot of men get erectile dysfunction so actually by encouraging blood into that area you're encouraging lubrication you're encouraging healthy tissues and it's also really good for stress relief, for pain relief, for feeling chilled. Lots of people, you know, might masturbate, put themselves to sleep because we know you go, oh, great, you know. So th- there are lots of good things about it. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a fan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a fan too. <laughs> but some women do have problems and I've, I, I'm sure, well, I, I, do are we seeing women that are still having problems reaching orgasm, either on their own or with their partner. Is is this something that we see? And is it something we see more than a man having an orgasm? Yeah, so so there's quite a lot of research on this subject, actually. So the, there is an orgasm gap. So 
the vast majority of human beings, male or female, will be able to orgasm on their own, especially if they know their anatomy and they know, you know, they've done a bit of exploration. Um, but when it comes to partnered sex, when you look at heterosexual couples, um, males carry on orgasming at the same rate. But heterosexual females, the rate of orgasm falls dramatically. And I think there's there's two issues with that. First of all, it's the fact that I think, especially in cis um, heteronormative sex, we are told it is a penis into a vagina, thrust, 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 thrust. It ends when the man ejaculates. And just the fact that we call, you know, clitoral stimulation, for example, foreplay, it's almost like, well, it's not really sex. It's the, the, the pre-event. Well, why can't that be the event? Because when you look at what women need to orgasm, we generally need clitoral stimulation. So um, orgasms are quite complicated in women. Um, so we do need to practice and we need to know what makes us orgasm ourselves because we're all very different. Um, some women will be able to orgasm from, pe- uh, from penetration, but about two thirds of women can't. Now, Freud, Sigmund Freud, the lovely man, he postulated that um, immature orgasms were clitoral orgasms, so thinking about stimulating the glans clitoris, which is at the top of the vulva, whereas a mature orgasm was from penetration because, of course, you know, (laughs) of course we need the great penis to uh, pleasure us. Um, And there was, I can't remember her name, but this poor woman went through having her clitoris removed, the, the glans clitoris removed and sewn a bit lower down, because she she did some work and realised that sometimes women with a clitoris that's slightly closer to the vaginal opening, probably because it gets stimulated more by the thrusting, were orgasming more than others. Anyway, obviously it didn't work. She got it replaced again a bit lower and it still didn't work. Poor, poor lady. But anyway, um, <laughs> interesting story. Um, so... Uh, yeah, so 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 again, what I always like women to understand is you are not abnormal if you can't have an orgasm from penetration. In fact, you're more normal. So that's the first thing I always tell people who are stressed and worried um, because then it normalises it. I don't think we talk about it enough. And when you, if if people watch porn, for example, the women are always writhing around in ecstasy with penetration. Whereas, you know, if you're watching it thinking, good God, that doesn't work with me. And, you know, then women often fake an orgasm. And the problem is once you fake an orgasm with something that doesn't work for you, your loving partner, hopefully is loving and wants to pleasure you, will then do what he did last time, if it's a he, to make you orgasm again in the same way. So if you faked it once, you can then end up getting in this cycle of faking it again and again, because ultimately you're like, I'm bored, I need this to end. And it's not going to make me orgasm. So sometimes we really need to be honest with ourselves, rewind a bit, have have a bit of self-exploration, work out what works for us, and then try and communicate that with your partner. Um, but again, orgasms, I don't think, are the ultimate goal. So I think we need to concentrate on intimacy because like with men and performance pressure, if you put too much pressure on the orgasm being the ultimate goal, it's not going to happen because we have, I mean, you know, um, the way we operate in the bedroom is incredibly complicated and our brains are the most erogenous zone. Forget the clitoris. So, you know, if you are turned off or stressed or uh, worried about something, nothing's going to uh, act properly, if you know what I mean. So so I think putting pressure on people to orgasm is totally the wrong thing to do. And we can still enjoy sex without orgasming. And I think that's really important to to remember that, you know, Sensual uh, touch, you know, hugs, kisses, all those things. For a lot of people, that's enough. And if that's great, you, you know, you roll with whatever makes you happy. Um, you know, there's a lot on Instagram about, you know, having to squirt and all this. Just, you know, what? Why are we chasing something that's, you know, this kind of that only very few women can do? You're not broken or abnormal if things don't work the way it works for somebody else. So I think that's a really important thing to to remember. That you've brought up so many things, so many great messages there as well. And uh, we did talk about squirting with uh, Marika Brigg on, on, on one of my podcasts. And, you know, the fact that so, so little is known and Masters and Johnson's totally ignored it. 
but I mean, for me, I do occasionally, and I just find it really messy and annoying, actually. And I, I don't like those orgasms as much where I'm where, when I'm squirting. I just don't feel so comfortable. So yeah, squirting definitely. Um, but I know some women that that do and, and love it. But let let's go back to our our image of sex. I mean, as you said, we have this image that sex is a penis in a vagina. And if we watch films and TV programs, it makes me so incense the lack of touching, affection, kissing, um, petting, oral sex. Mm. And I'm going to mention this now. I think it was Bridgerton Series 2, Episode 7, I seem to remember, where he just goes down on her. And, and I was literally, my kids were like, oh my God, she's gone mad. I was literally like, yes, this is what they should be showing. And they are showing it a little bit more in TV. Yeah. But I would say about, it seems that almost all sex they show on TV, which, and porn is, I actually haven't watched a lot of porn, but on TV, certainly, it's that this is how you have sex. You You have a quick cuddle, you insert the penis into the vagina. You both apparently have an orgasm and it takes about two minutes and, and it stops. And I, that is not great TV because that, there were so many other things. And I watched that um, Men Up uh, film, which was really moving about the first Viagra trials. It was, it was, I really loved the film. It really made me think much more about how this, how not having an erection can affect a man. But, I mean, they did bring it up a bit. There's so much more to sex than just putting your penis in a vagina. So, you know, what what else can we do to encourage people to have a sexy, uh, a sexy health, a healthy sex life? <laughs> again, I, I, again, it comes down to education, I think. And, and I don't have, I, I guess, I think why we watch films is sometimes to escape, isn't it? And to imagine, to fantasise. So I get why sex looks nice on the screen because, other, you know, it would be nice sometimes to see people farting, getting cramp in the leg, falling off the bed. I don't know, you know, the, crashing teeth with each other or all these other things that happen to normal people. But I think as long as we remember we're seeing TV and film through a lens of whoever's created it, it is nice when you see um, MSM, so men having sex with men, you know, and women having sex with women, I think we see much more of that now. Um, and I think we do see more, um, I guess it depends what you want, what you watch, but um, I think we're definitely um, branching out. And I think that's really important, especially if you watch Sex Education with Gillian Anderson in. I mean, that I thought that was brilliant and mm. very, you know, open and inclusive of, of all, you know, different sexualities. Um, so I think that was that was a real crucial um, I guess for me anyway, turning point in the TV uh, genre, I suppose. Um, but again, I, I think it's a little bit like, you know, we watch murders, don't we? And, and uh, dramas. We like to escape when we're watching telly. So I don't feel TV should be an education source. I think we need to be better in schools. We need to be better talking to each other. We need to be more honest with each other. Um, our communication about sex needs to be better. And we kind of leave films as a bit of fantasy. Because I think if we do start making f films, will never, well, films and porn should never be used as education. Sadly, they are. Because again, if we're not talking to our children um, or, you know, each other about these things, people are inquisitive and they will go and learn. And that's the easiest way to get access to this sort of information. And there's, there's, there's some awful statistics, I think, 50% of, uh, is it 11-year-olds 11, 11 or 13-year-olds have viewed porn, which yeah. is horrifying. Mm. So, you know, as a parent, don't put your head in the sand. They are seeing these things and you need to bring it up and you need to say, you realise, you know, if someone shows you something on the phone or you see something and it frightens you, this is not real life. Because, again, those images are incredibly scarring, I think. Um, you know, and the size of the penises on these things and, you know, and the, the unrealistic vulvas that have all had lady, uh, labiaplasties and, you know, massive boobs and no no waste, you know. So, so again, I think we need to be really careful and, and just keep talking and, and better education. Yeah, I, I get really frustrated about the 
the images women have of their vulva and they think anything that looks you know different than what they're seeing on porn is normal and and I've uh, Sarah Crichton um is a professor in in and UCL does some work with us and she, you know she's done some great work about why women thinking that there's something wrong with their vulva and they need vulval surgery and she's measured the labia etc and they they they've been totally uh, the same as a control group who don't feel there's anything wrong with their vulva and i encourage people you know there are some great um social media sites where they are showing um lots of different vulvas i i'm on a few and they pop up on my instagram all the time I go, oh look at this one you know they're, they're a beautiful yeah. thing and we they're all different and they should have bits and bobs and and um, I, I do want to move yeah. on to um, STIs. But before I do that, one more thing about sex. So should we be encouraging people to masturbate? And, and where are we now with sex toys? So um, when I was growing up, we had a rampant rabbit if we were lucky. Um, but I know there's all sorts <laughs> of new things. And I went into Tesco's recently. And I, was, I live in a small town where everyone knows each other, literally. And I was so amazed to see that my little Tesco sold a vibrator. And I couldn't imagine anyone daring to go to the till with that because, yeah, all the teenagers we know are working in there. And then I, well, I did put it on social media and someone told me a great story that they, they had a they, they were buying one and uh, it had a, one of those security locks <laughs> sort of waving it around. Mm-hmm. Saying, oh, she was mortified. I thought it was hilarious. But um, what, what about masturbation? Um, so, yeah, again, I think it's really important to know your own body before you leap into any kind of sexual relationship with anybody else. And so just as we accept boys are going to masturbate, we are very awkward when it comes to female masturbation. So I, when I'm lecturing, I always bring this up because, you know, we're very good at saying to a male, you know, well, do you have any problems with masturbation when we're talking about erectile problems? And I and then I put flip it the other way and I go, when did you last ask a woman about masturbation? And it's in it's like a tumbleweed goes round because it's a really difficult topic for us to bring up, but also because we're you know we're females, we fa- we feel it's a little bit shameful, I suppose, or or it's not the done thing. And again, that's because of everything that we've talked about. You know, our sort of often shame about our bodies. I, I do want to say if anyone's listening and has hasn't seen lots of vulvas because most women don't see each other's unless you're in my profession you generally don't see anybody else's so sometimes you can get a distorted view whereas boys get their willies out all the time there's statues and all sorts of things um so a really good site is labia libraries so please you know list that on the resource as well it's a really lovely site of uh lots of different vulvas from the front and with legs open so look at that you will feel totally normal after looking at that site um i've forgotten what we were saying now masturbation Masturbation. oh yes yes (laughs) yes so yes i think sex toys are brilliant so a lot of um a lot of people will well not a lot but some people will struggle to orgasm especially to start with when they're learning um with just fingers or you know, if, if you're trying to do it yourself. So sometimes toys can be a great way because, again, it's like a muscle memory. You have to learn what your body wants and how to get it to relax and do things. So sometimes a toy is a little bit like a cheat and you can get some really um, good vibration going and give yourself an orgasm. And as we get older as well, we sometimes need more stimulation than we may have done when we were younger because blood supply and nerve supply is not as good. So sometimes you need that added stimulation. If you used to be able to orgasm with your fingers when you were a teenager or 20-year-old and you can't, you know, when you're 50, try a toy. That's uh, one good thing to do. Obviously, you know, we're not going to go into that, but HRT and lube and all those other things are important. Um, and there's uh, medically, um, the the suckery ones, you know, that you can put on the end of your clitoris, Womanizer are a brand of them, but you can get lots, lots of different ones. There's some medical evidence that using those can pull blood supply into that area. So with continued use can eventually make it easier for you to orgasm without the use of one of those. So, but again, that's something to try. There's, there's uh, again, there's not a lot of data or scientific evidence on sex toys, but again, they it makes sense that, you know, if you need a bit more uh, stimulation, they're a good 
go to. And there are, you know, gosh, there's so many different ones. I think a little, um, a little, if you're just starting out, I think dildos can be very scary because they're often very big. So rampant rabbits obviously have a dildo on and they have the ears. What most women need is the ear bit. So if you just try a, um, uh, like a little uh, vibe, a clitoral stimulator vibrator they're often a good thing they're, they're not scary there's i my favorite one i'm not sure if i'm allowed to say this i'm not paid by them but it's by so divine so divine or so divine and it's a little lipstick and so it looks like a lipstick so you can just put it on your side table and no one's going to open it or know it's a vibrator rechargeable 30 quid brilliant <laughs> i think they do those in tesco's maybe or, I do. I, or super I've, drug I've, anyway I've got one of those and I take it on flights when I go to a conference. Um, and I'm, I'm probably going to say too much, but I'm, I'm going to open up. Um, I'm, I've never been very good with um, orgasm, orgasming with my fingers. So I've always used, um, yeah. I've used a massager. I used to have a massager. It's a body massager and put that on my clitoris. Yeah. Um, and then if I use different sex toys, I have really quite different orgasms. So some of them, might take longer to come, but yeah. they're much more pleasurable along the way. Uh, with a massager, it can be really quick, yeah, really, really quick. So it's sort of a short uh, orgasm. Um, it's very intense, but then there was wasn't much pleasure along the way. So you know, just you know, experiment. And and as we get older, you know, I know so many women that are that are not having sex with their husband anymore, not so frequently, and they want to have more. You know, just do it do it it's it's good for us yeah. to have these orgasms yeah. so just do what's right for you it's not yeah. shameful you know i've just told you how i do it so um you know it's really really not shameful yeah. and you did mention a little bit there for as as people age so that you know we we you've mentioned about the there can be issues around the vagina and the, the vaginal tissues and and lubes needing lubes and things but you know increasing that blood flow with regular orgasms could be really really beneficial but also a lot of the men I speak yeah. to um they they're having problems um uh coming and they're having problems with their erections as well so <clears throat> you know I mean what what advice would you give an old, older person who's having any issues um well well so male um Male erectile dysfunction is a, a is a whole other subject. With regards to masturbation, it's healthy for men to ejaculate at least twice a week. It's I think two or three times a week. It's shown to reduce the risk of prostate cancer. Um, so you know, there's some people on Instagram saying you know don't masturbate, you lose you. But that's the wrong advice. So for men, we know masturbation is healthy for lots of reasons. As as uh, as with uh, women. Um, erectile dysfunction is, is a whole nother ball game because it can be to do with your nerves, your vessels, um, you know, diabetes, etc. But also men are just as um, affected by psychological problems. So, you know, performance pressures and, you know, concerns, worries, medications can cause problems. Um, and I think the more we realise, um, uh, the, the more we know, I guess, about the clitoris and the penis, the more we realise that they're, they're you know, they're very similar in a lot of ways. So they are homologous, got that word right. Um, <laughs> so if you, uh, we're all, we're all, we all start off the same. And if you uh, have a Y chromosome rather than the other X one, your clitoris turns into a penis. So basically, when you think about it in that way, you know, blood supply, all those things, what we know about male penises, we can't always totally um, assimilate them in the same way. But you know, there are similarities. So, you know, just as blood supply in the penis can go wrong, we know the blood supply in the clitoris can go wrong. So, um, yeah, I can't remember what your question was. Goodness me, I'm no, going no, off on no. tangents. <laughs> right. I love it. I, I love, I, my students are always complaining that I go off at too many tangents. So never worry about that. No, you know, you've answered that. It's about the, the issues. Sorry. Sorry, I would I would say just about um, as we get older, I mean, there are loads of toys that have bigger buttons, you know, that are easier to manipulate. You know, that there are, I think, um, Love Honey, I think, do a section for older people. So, you know, people who have joint difficulties, there's cushions you can put under your back. There are so many aids now that are all, you know, I guess under the umbrella of sex toys, which will, you know, if you want to stay sexually active, there are loads of things that you can, that, that will help you 
stay that way, I suppose. But again, I don't feel that we should be pressured. It's got to be, you know, a two way thing. Um, you know, and, and again, if one partner doesn't want to, then I think we have to think about, you know, pleasuring ourselves. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And um, Jane Fonda's uh, comedy she did, was it, is it Frankie and Gracie? Uh, they had a whole series where they were developing a vibrator to help arthritic hands. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I love yeah. yeah. But let, let's move on to sexually transmitted, transmitted infections. So when I was watching yeah. uh, you on the sex clinic, I was amazed by how many of the young people admitted they're not protecting themselves against STIs. And, and you told me that syphilis is on the rise in a big way and the public and healthcare professionals are not always recognising the symptoms to test for. So what issues have we got around STIs? Oh, gosh. So uh, trends are going up. So especially with gonorrhea, so gonorrhea, the highest rate since records began in 1918 when the Venereal Diseases Act was brought in. So we started recording these these cases. Syphilis, we almost got rid of in the 80s when, you know, because of the um, HIV epidemic, AIDS epidemic, it, you know, sex pretty much disappeared, as did syphilis. But since sort of, um, well, the last kind of decade or so, rates have risen so quickly um, that, you know, even in Rotherham, which is a small, you know, it's, it's a small district general hospital, we see it regularly. And when I was training, so this is only, you know, say 15 years ago, we had to do, um, as part of training, we have to do this sort of, you know, show that you can do something. So we had to do dark ground microscopy, which is a bit like, uh, which is what we do if we saw a chancre, which is a, a primary stage of syphilis. We had to do it on an aubergine because you just didn't find the patients. So you have to pretend you could do this on an aubergine and get signed off. Whereas now, you know, we are, we, we, it's a regular occurrence that we see syphilis and not just in men who are having sex with men. We see it in, we've seen it in pregnant women, in uh, 59 year old ladies who are blood donating, you know, all sorts. So I think we need to really consider that anybody, anybody who's having sex can have a sexually transmitted infection. And I think the really important thing that, we that people fall into the trap of doing what we call risk assessments you know do you do you inject drugs do you have sex with you know as a man do you have sex with men or you know do you get paid for sex all these things they really don't really matter because even if you feel that you're in a monogamous relationship you never really know what the other person's doing and I don't mean that to sound awful and horrible but it's really important that you protect yourself as well um, and so, for example, you know, anyone who comes from a coil fit, for example, I will always do screening on them before I insert something into their uterus, whether they're married, green, black, spotty, white. I don't care the race, the religion, the age. If you're having sex, you need to consider that you're at risk of sexually transmitted infections. So obviously, there are people who are at higher risk of sexually transmitted infections, but it's always the people that, I guess, um, uh, make you really think that you just would not have picked like 59 year old lady who uh this she husband had died 17 years ago new partner of six months donated blood every four months donated blood syphilis you know come and see us i mean that's totally shocking it blew her world apart it's a hugely um i guess what is stigmatizing because of the way we think about stis um but yeah, so so never think that you are not at risk. So I'd always advise people just, you know, if you've never been tested for HIV and syphilis, at least have that done in your lifetime. And, you know, if you're changing partners, come and have a screen every 12 months or, you know, again, depending on um, how often you or how many partners you're having, really. It, it will all depend on what kind of sex you're having and, and how many partners you have, really. But, you know, please just, you know, if you're passing by, you can get testing online now um uh most yeah most sexual health clinics will do tests online what i wouldn't do is pay for tests because some private companies test for all sorts of rubbish that do not need testing so if you're going to get tested please use your local service because they will only test what is within british association of sexual health guidelines because otherwise you know they'll test for various urea plasmas and mycoplasmas which have no evidence that we need to test for and we get ourselves in a little pickle 
Um, so yeah, make sure you're going via your local service and it'll all be done for free. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, there's so much now that you can get tested on, on, you know, privately and I'm, I'm exactly the same. Do not do that. Go via your NHS service. Mm-hmm. Now you said a little bit about online. So, yeah. um, I, I heard that a, a lot of people, they, they, I think they have a phone call and then you get, is, is this right? You get sent the test. Um, and what, so what, and then, then you send it back. So you do it at home. So what can we test for at home? If we've, if we've got the kits from the NHS, not privately. Yeah. So, uh, gonorrhea and chlamydia. So that will be a swab wherever, um, the penis goes basically. So if you're a heterosexual, generally it's just a vaginal swab you get offered, but if you ask for a, a rectal or a throat swab, you can get those. Um, so men who have sex with men, generally we'd swab triple sites. So the bum, um, send a urine and do a throat swab. If you're a heterosexual man, you just wee in a little pot and send the sample off. So that's gonorrhea and chlamydia. So gonorrhea and chlamydia can sit in all sites. So the the throat, the bum, the vagina, in the urethra, within the penis. Um, and again, all sexually transmitted infections can be asymptomatic. So it means that they don't have any symptoms. So it really irritates me when people go, no, no, I haven't got anything because I've got no symptoms. That's not true. You don't know unless you've been tested. Um, and also people presume they know who has something because they go, oh, she was clean. Well, I, I hate that word. So, um, yeah, STIs aren't a matter of personal hygiene. Um, so, yeah, gonorrhea and chlamydia, really easy to do. All uh, gum clinics will provide that generally online. And, and often you just put your details in. As long as you live within their catchment, they'll send them out. You don't even need to give a you don't even need to speak to anybody. Um right. A lot of places offer HIV and syphilis testing via finger prick testing. So in Rotherham, we use a company called SH24 who send that out. So some people, you just prick your finger and pop it in and um, and you can either send it off or you get a result there and then. Um, so again, yeah, very important to test, especially in uh, this day and age. Um, but again, I think I think when we're thinking about STIs, rather than just making it very medical, I think we have to think about why why our behaviors are changing and why STIs are going up. And I think there's a lot of different factors. First of all, we have more partners than we did. So we're waiting for the latest NatSAL study to come out. But from 10 years ago, partner numbers were going up. Um, With the advent of uh, U equals U, so that basically means that anybody who's been diagnosed with HIV and is on treatment um, can't pass the virus on to such to sexual partners and that's a huge a massive massive thing for us who work in the field because we're hoping that will reduce the stigma that goes alongside often with people who uh, live with HIV so yeah you equals you is massive you cannot pass this virus on to sexual partners which is brilliant but the downside is is that then people are less likely to use condoms if they didn't before and the other the other thing is PrEP, so we can give pre-exposure prophylaxis to um, people who are high risk of getting HIV. Mostly in this country, that's men who have sex with men. Um, but but again, and it, I don't think it encourages people to have condoms or sex. But it and and actually, probably the people who are on PrEP are are not changing the syphilis epidemic because they were having unprotected sex anyway. We're just allowing them to do it safe with regards to HIV and they have to come every three months to get tested. So I don't think it's that population that are causing the huge burgeoning outbreak. I think it's 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 everybody else who isn't seen as a risk almost. Um, our capacity at sexual health has gone down hugely. So budget cuts have been cut. There was Our bash president has been all over Sky News last week talking about the budget cuts and, you know, STI STIs going up and and the the problem is is often if people do have symptoms they will disappear by the time they manage to get through and get an appointment so people don't turn up or don't get tested so so that's a big issue we need to be able to offer more appointments and get people in um, ASAP before they then transmit on to other people and then the way we have sex has changed so a lot of people use apps um, to to find sexual partners, sometimes those apps, um, the people that are having sex with are anonymous. That makes contact tracing very difficult. Um, sex is very easily available now. It feels it's you know it's a bit more. I think people are a bit more open to casual sex. Um, and as we said, you know, condoms. 
<sighs> condoms. It's I mean, condoms are great, but they have to be used properly. Um, and it's probably the, the people I see are, are a different. You know, I'm not saying this is the I don't see the whole world. So I generally will see people who, I guess, categorize themselves at a slightly high risk, maybe because they're coming for screening. Um, but a lot of the people I see don't use condoms. Um, it's quite rare that well, maybe rare is a bit of an exaggeration, but it's it's um, it's not it's not unusual for people to say they don't use condoms. Um, one of my one of my son's friends, I won't say which son or which friend, um, I've discussed with him about condoms and he told me his penis is too big. <laughs> he can't put a condom well, on. Well, you can fit condoms over your head. So, exactly. so they are, no penis is too big. And you can get, you can get different sizes of condoms. So, you know, if you do have a very large penis, you can get different you know you can get small condoms big condoms as an average condom I gave uh, my son them and they blew them up with balloons like massive water balloons I'm like if you can hold you know a huge amount of water it can fit a penis in of any size um so again but it it does change how you know it does change how uh, people experience sex which is why I think you know boys really need to practice um, masturbating with a condom on or, you know, what we call a posh wank in the industry, you know, because th- there's no point um, getting used to f- the feel of skin on skin and then expecting it to feel the same with, you know, some latex in between it. So I, I think, again, it's about um, perceptions of sex and what we're used to and our, you know, our connections in our head. And often, you know, you men will put a condom on and because of how they feel about the condom, they get, uh, you know, they get erectile dysfunction, you know, it all just goes down because they have this perception. I can't, I can't do this with a condom on. So again, it's about retraining ourselves into better habits. So, you've got so many good advice for everybody here now. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, and to finish off, we are both very passionate about teaching these subjects, me on the reproductive health side, you on the sexual health side and, and beyond, both of us beyond. Um, uh, we we want to educate people in schools. We want teachers to be armed with the resources. And you've made some, and, and we're making some as well. Um, we're not we're not we're covering the reproductive health side. But um, any advice about how this is discussed in in schools today and and teaching young people? I mean, I, I sex education, the the drama with Gillian Anderson. I tell everyone, all the teenagers I know, please watch it. It it is educational. Yeah. So what? What can we do to help this get taught in schools? Oh God! So buy the you calls, buy the you before two resources. We, me and Becky, put so much work into these uh, resources. We've made some for thirteen-year-olds onwards, and then we've just released another lot for um, slightly older children about contraception things. But you know, we put. She's a GP, obviously. I'm me, and and we. We're, we're both kind of from the same egg, I think. We're both really passionate about, we kept seeing the same things like, you know, vulval lips, for example, and, you know, condoms and, and how long should sex happen for and what is discharge and, you know, all these really basic questions that I don't think get covered very well. So we covered all these things and Becky put big boxes in school and so we've got loads of people asking the questions that they wanted answered. So we put our heart and soul into this, but the problem is, is we're not very good at advertising it because we're we're just, you know, we're we're very busy women. Um, but I'm hoping that they will take off and they they come with videos, backpacks, work um uh, worksheets, etc. And they're incredibly cheap. I'm not sure. I think it's like 150 quid or something for a whole uh lesson plan, um, which you can then use forever. So, you know, we've tried and and I don't get any money from it nor does Becky it all just goes back into the charity to make more um resources so it really is just it's it's a passion of us both so please if anyone is a teacher listening please check them out um or you know if you're a parent you've and you're on the PTA <laughs> send you send your uh, headmaster the links um <laughs> please there you go that's my little plug but again yeah. I don't I don't make anything of this. This is just because, you know, it, it, we're, I'm really proud of them and I think they should answer lots of questions that don't always get uh, 
don't, don't always get taught about, like, you know, discharge. We pour, um, what do we call it? Some some weird yogurt into knickers. And we talk about period pants and menstrual cups. And it's very visual and, um, you know, hopefully won't uh, won't cause too much cringing. <laughs> <laughs> Except from your kids <laughs> when they watch it. Yeah. Um, so my... <laughs> you've absolutely told us so much valuable information we could we could really talk forever we really are so much on the same page but to finish off um my final question to all my guests are have you heard people say why didn't anyone tell me this and if they did what's the sort of main things that in your career you've come across that people just didn't know before i think the list is long for you it's too long one thing I really want women to know is that they don't have to bleed on a contraceptive. That's a really big myth that needs busting. So I spend a lot of my time talking to women about contraceptives and, and they go, oh, no, no, I have to be healthy. I'm not healthy if I don't bleed. And so basically what's happening on a hormonal contraceptive is you are keeping that endometrium, the lining of your womb, so thin. There is no blood. It doesn't doesn't build up endlessly. It doesn't get absorbed, it, you know, so the hormonal coil, for example, you will carry on ovulating. So you ovulate. I love a hormonal coil. That's my little plug as well. I love hormonal coils. They're brilliant for sexual dysfunction, uh, because for desire and things like that, because you are totally you. So we're not, you know, some contraceptives do have a link with reducing sexual desire. I mean, that's a whole other podcast, so I won't <laughs> bore you too long. But um, some contraceptives will stop ovulation, which is why, you know, and thin endometrium, but the hormonal coil just thins endometrium. Um, why did I get onto that? Yeah, but yeah, so don't stop your contraceptive because you're worried that you need your body to revert back to normal because that's when people have unwanted pregnancies. So, you know, trust in trust in the process. You don't need a break from these things. Um, you can be on contraceptives your entire reproductive life if that's what you choose to do. Um, you know, generally the the you know, the benefits of these things far outweigh risks. There we go. Great. Try it. That was not succinct, but I apologise. <laughs> no, that was that was perfect. And this is a really tricky question, but what motivates you? Because you're so dynamic, you're doing all these fabulous things. What motivates you to do that? I don't know. I just I I think that I want everyone to know what I know. Yeah. So I love trying to educate people because I've I it's it's changed me and my perception of my body and my sexuality and my happiness. So I kind of want to just spread that around a bit, <laughs> whether people want to listen or not. Um. So yeah, and I think it's just it, it when when you tell someone something and the penny drops and and you have a genuine God, thank you so much. For that that is that is everything to me more than money more than anything else if someone genuinely has found something I've done or or said to them really helpful you'll know this you know and someone says thank you so much you know this has been brilliant and you go wow that that's it that that's what motivates me when people yeah I'm very needy, Joyce. I like I like lots of love and uh, thank yous. We're, we're from the same egg as well. And 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 for me, education is an instant gratification because you tell some someone something and they immediately say that that like, oh, thank you so much. And I'm like, oh, that's great. <laughs> um, and yeah. this is a this yeah. is a good one. What makes you happy, and where is your happy place? Oh gosh. Do you know what? I think probably sitting around the dinner table with my my beautiful children and, and husband and just, you know, it's it's I think enjoying the simple things in life and um, you know, laughing, seeing them grow. I'm so proud of both of them. You know, but being a doctor's one thing, but being a mother is a whole nother ball game and way more complicated and difficult than anything I'll ever do in medicine. But the most, you know, the most rewarding, I think. They are brilliant kids. I'm very proud of them. So yeah, just just chilling. I quite liked COVID for that reason. There was a lot of family time, and I always have a psycho dog who's who's not being psycho at the moment. But I do love being in the middle of nowhere with the dog and the wind, and you know, I love being outdoors. 
There's lots of wind at the moment. But yeah, I loved COVID as well. Be, being with my kids, I couldn't go. I, I travel a lot abroad and, and it was, we loved, we loved COVID. So sorry, that sounds a bit wrong. But and the final question, oh. what advice would you give your younger self? Um, that's a good question. I, I was a very, very different person as a little girl. I was incredibly shy. I didn't want to use the telephone. Um, I was always worried that I'd get it wrong. Always worried that someone could do it better than me. So, oh no, I shouldn't do that. You do it. You do it. Um, and so I think it's, I'd like to just tell me that it's okay. And to just keep taking those little baby steps so, for example, you know, doing the sex clinic for me was just I had to put my big girl pants on and really step out of that comfort zone. And every time I do something like that, you know, get on a stage in front of hundreds of people and lecture, it still makes me feel sick and nervous. And that little girl in me goes, what earth do you think you're doing? Um, but, yeah, I think just, you know, we, we all develop and grow at different rates and and that's OK. So I think just you know, t- take steps as quickly as, you know, walk as fast as you feel you need to do, I think, rather than, you know, that there's never, life is a very, um, well, takes lots of winding roads, doesn't it? And I think as long as you're keeping going forwards and, you know, wandering down whichever path you're taking, that's okay, as long as you're doing it happily, I think. So yeah, that was a that wasn't a very good conversation. That was lovely, but yeah, something like that. Try and have a bit more confidence, I think, in myself. Yeah, Naomi, you have given us so so much wisdom. <laughs> Your wisdom, you've really shared that today, and I'm sure the people listening to this are all going to learn something and take something from it. Which I think is what both of us want to do. We want to. Teach everyone, as you said, I love that. Teach everyone what I know. And I, I feel the same. So thank you so much for being a guest on my podcast. And those that are listening on Valentine's Day, uh, if you want to, go and have an orgasm. <laughs> However you want to do it. <laughs> we don't... So thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, happy Valentine's. Pleasure. Nice to speak to you. <laughs> Bye.